is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. Welcome to Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. I'm your host, Paige Nick, and for the next hour, we'll be talking exclusively about books. Did you know that this year South Africa has not one, but two finalists in the Booker Prize Literary Awards? It's one of the world's most prestigious literary awards. Essentially, it's the Olympics of literature. To celebrate South Africa's excellent showing, we have interviews lined up with both of these long-listed authors in our special Booker Prize segment at the end of the show. So, let's get the show on the road with Beryl Eichenberger. The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams is published by Penguin Random House. Words make up our lives. They each have a story, whether on the page, in conversation, or in our thoughts. Our world is described in words, and the use of a dictionary is something most of us grew up with. Those hefty volumes of my childhood contained words and meanings that were to be explored and used to create stories or pepper one's conversation in an attempt to sound more intellectual. But where did this all start? And were there words that perhaps were spoken but not included in a dictionary. Australian author Pip Williams has created a simply enchanting novel with the Dictionary of Lost Words that merges fact and fiction seamlessly as she recounts the compilation of the Oxford English Dictionary through the eyes of Esme Nicol as she grows from child to adult. Esme, motherless daughter of editor Harry, spends her time under the table in the scriptorium where the Oxford English Dictionary is being compiled. It is 1886, and work has begun with daily word submissions from all over the country that arrive by post to be interrogated by the esteemed Oxford team. Examined, discussed, confirmed, and researched, they are either discarded or included. Before the last word, there was another. It arrived at the scriptorium in a second-hand envelope. The old address crossed out, and Dr. Murray, Sunnyside, Oxford, written in its place. The loss of this word results in Esme's funny fingers and her learning that some words are more important than others. I learned this growing up in the scriptorium, but it took me a long time to understand why. For Esme, these slips of paper have an almost magical quality, and when they slide from the table, she collects them. Some are meant for the bin, but there are the words that she steals, and it is this that forms the frame of the story. Esme's collection is stowed in a trunk under Dr. Murray's maid Lizzie's bed. Lizzie cares for Esme as a child and remains her friend throughout her life. As the pile of slip grows, so does the story of Esme's fascination. And as she matures, she discovers that words that are included are not necessarily those spoken on the street, in working-class homes, or that reference women. Words are lost through the patriarchy of academics, and she sets out to rectify this. And so the Dictionary of Lost Words emerges, a gift of love. The story takes us through a meticulously researched timeline, inclusive of the real people who were involved in the dictionary, Edith Thompson, author of History of England, is Esme's aunt, the wise and caring relative 
who guides Esme's career. Dr. James Murray, appointed as editor in 1879, is the fatherly figure whose family embraced the child and the woman. Williams blends the fiction and the history with enormous skill into a memorable story. I cycled and walked the streets of Oxford with Esme. I was with her as the suffrage movement gained momentum, and when war broke out, I cried at her losses. I heard those phrases on the London streets that Esme carefully collected, words that would only be, in, be included way into the future. Her vision and passion are tangible throughout the book. That we have the power to change through our use of language is evident, but it is that very use that suppresses or inspires. As we delve into a history that has unwittingly shaped our lives, we take the cue from the word Esme steals. It emphasizes how women were undermined, ignored and repressed, and their struggle to be heard. The timelines at the back of the book are a valuable addition and telling in how the contributing women were seen. 71 years after the proposal, 150 men met at London's Goldsmith Hall to celebrate the final publication of the Oxford English Dictionary. Only three women were invited, one being Edith Thompson, but only to view from the balcony an unsubtle dismissal. And the stolen word? Bondmaid. I looked this up in my 1990s version of the concise Oxford Dictionary and could not find it. Is it still a lost word? I'm sure you too will be curious. The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams is published by Penguin Random House. I can tell you that in the depths of COVID despair last year, the Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams turned out to be my favorite read of 2020. I can really recommend it. We turn now to a piece of fiction that has never been more relevant as Anthony Frijon reviews Red Air by Hamilton Wendy. Red Air, written by Hamilton Wendy, published by Quartz Publisher. In brief, Al Morris is with the CIA. His journalist son Danny is a foreign correspondent. Danny writes a piece about a terrorist group controlled by Asmaray Shah, which leads to Shah's son being captured by the Americans. Al is taken prisoner by Asmaray Shah, who demands that Danny negotiate for the release of Asmaray Shah's son in exchange for his father's life. All very straightforward, except this engrossing book is set in Afghanistan, a country that nobody who has read any history would want to get involved in, but sadly do as America and their NATO allies have discovered to their cost in the recent past. Danny leaves the comfort of the world he lives in, leaving behind his wife, Bee, and two young children, traveling to a country that is fraught with danger and the very real possibility of being killed. Danny's arrival in Afghanistan is the beginning of a journey into fear, the constant threat of danger and the awful possibility of failure. Asmaray Shah has set a deadline for the conclusion of negotiations. Failing to meet this deadline, Danny knows, will lead to his father dying a most awful death. Danny is escorted by a squad of United States Marines. Events seem to conspire against him meeting the deadline, from attacks by opposing terrorist forces to the weather. The title of this engrossing read, Red Air, doesn't involve airstrikes, 
but the dust in the air, making it impossible for any air support that they've been accustomed to. That and the communications breakdown make the mission even more challenging. Red Air is not a second-hand account of the conflict in Afghanistan, the imaginings of a creative writer. Wendy is an experienced foreign war correspondent who has first-hand knowledge of the sheer awfulness of armed conflict. In Afghanistan, he personally experienced going on an extended patrol with the U.S. Marines, carrying up to 45 kilograms of equipment, weapons, and supplies in searing heat and dust. He understands the constant fear of being shot at by an unseen enemy, knowing that at any second an IED, improvised explosive device, may maim or kill. From covering some 17 different conflicts around the world, Wendy knows the horror of war and how it touches all those who have the misfortune of being caught up in the pain and suffering, particularly the civilians and especially the women and children. His empathy for them comes through very strongly. With the recent shocking events unfolding on our TV screens of Kabul falling to the Taliban, one can but weep for humanity, underscoring that nobody is left untouched by war. What is the final outcome to this engrossing read? I recommend that you take the journey with Hamilton Wendy in Red Air to find out. Red Air is published by Quartz Publisher at a recommended retail price of 150 rand.
That was Come September by Mantovani and his orchestra. And you're tuned in to our special Booker edition of Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, brought to you by Exclusive Books. I doubt there isn't a South African who doesn't feel frustrated by the systemic mismanagement of South African airlines. Leanne Voicy read Hijackers on Board by Cynthia Stimple, how one courageous whistleblower fought against the capture of SAA. Just as we begin to feel irredeemably immersed in endless stories of corruption, lies and deceit, along comes Cynthia Stimple to give us a glimmer of hope. Hijackers on Board is her detailed account of what she personally witnessed, experienced and exposed while serving as the Group Treasurer of South African Airways during the time period 2006-2016. Her goal, a bit disappointingly, is not to serve up salacious gossip and juicy shenanigans, but rather to give a self-assured and detailed account of what happened. She names names, big powerful names, and puts herself figuratively and literally in the firing line, showing impressive strength and also vulnerability. She lays out how the already sinking ship she joined in 2006 became a full-blown irreversible disaster, which presented a microcosm of the looting and capture of South Africa's money, assets, and very soul. This book will make the perfect gift for someone interested in the deeper political machinations in our country. While a little thin on atmosphere and character building, it more than makes up for that with the context it provides for many of the deplorable acts being committed against us as a nation and the very few brave citizens standing strong. Hijackers on Board by Cynthia Stimple is published by Tafelberg Publishers. To celebrate National Bry Day coming up soon, here's Philip Todras chatting to Jan Bry about his latest release, The Vegetarian Option. Wait, Vegetarian Bry Book? Huh? It's September month. And, in case you've forgotten, 24th September each year is National Bry Day. So this is a very good time to be reviewing Jan Bry, the vegetarian option. Now, I'm speaking to Jan, and I've got to admit, Jan, that the first thing, a vegetarian option, this man has got to be joking. So can you tell us where you're coming from? I mean, you associate, you know, I don't really associate vegetarian with a bry. So let's begin at the beginning. <laughs> I think it's, it's, for me, it's very simple the, the core and the essence of everything I do is National Bry Day. So it's encouraging all South Africans to unite around fires on 24 September every year to share and celebrate our heritage around fires to wave our national flag and to have a great time. Now, if we're saying we want to unite all South Africans around fires on Bry Day every year, those all South Africans include South Africans who, for whatever reason, chooses not to eat meat. So whether you call yourself a vegetarian or maybe it's for health reasons or maybe you just don't like meat, it doesn't really matter. The point is you can still bry even if you don't want to eat meat. Now, we can say this, and I've been saying this for 17 years, as long as National Bry Day has been going, it's for all South Africans. Bry Day is not a... Uh, me, personally, I love meat. I eat a lot of meat. But... Friday at its heart, it's not about promoting the meat interests or business. There's not some sinister thing here. We just want to unite all South Africans. It includes people that don't eat meat. Hence, I said, let's go for it. Let's write a book with fantastic prior recipes for people that choose not to eat meat, or as we call it, the vegetarian option. And that's where it's coming from. Yeah, and I like the idea that in Africa, fire is a traditional place of gathering. And, exactly. and as you say, you're urging people to get together. So I really like that ethos, and I must say, I'm also 
food is not just food. Food has a whole cultural component. So maybe you want to give us a little bit of background to some of these recipes, where they come from, and what motivates you to include some of them in this book. A very handsome book, by the way, I must say. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I think you touch upon... So let's start with the handsomeness of the book. I, I do think that if, you, if you're simply saying the photos, the visual appeal of the photos, it's possibly the prettiest book I've ever done because it is actually easier to make nice photos of vegetables and fruit than it is to make nice photos. You know, you can only shoot the steak from so many angles and it's always sort of the same color. Um, so it was actually, compared to, to the more meat-heavy books that I've done, this was actually a, a pretty uh, a walk in the park, the, the photo shoot part of it. Inspiration-wise, for me, I travel a lot. And for me, from the start with Friday, so all my thoughts to some or other uh, level is always connected to what is the point and the purpose of Friday. Now, it's it's also to say it's not about drawing the biggest piece of meat and it's it's about making uh, to dry the action of of drying to make it aspirational so people need to look forward to a braai and those that maybe don't think it's their absolute favorite way of eating they also need to start to understand it is actually the upper echelon of eating is having a braai now how do we make it appealing we can also go and learn from from other cooking styles around the world so it's not just about making the fire. Once you've got that bed of red-hot coals, you can actually cook absolutely everything on a fire. And I think the vegetarian option shows that very clearly. Specifically, if you ask me, the natural sugars that are in most fruit and vegetables, it becomes more sweet when you braai it. That searing hot heat of coals gets a bit of smokiness. So any vegetable is gonna taste better when you braai it than on a stove. And then also, I really like eating curry. So for me, anything you make on a fire is a braai. I do a lot of poikis, so in a, in a cast iron pot, food on the fire. And of course, when you're making great curry poikis, you don't need to have meat in the poikis. So you'll see there's a whole, uh, let's say, section in the book just with, with various uh, vegetarian curries, which also in a time when maybe some or all of us are a little bit economically stretched, making food without using meat obviously cuts the, the cost a lot. And a curry is a very nice way to make fantastic tasting food without breaking the bank. Well, you also talk about the spices and the aromas. I must tell you that I was salivating. That's the only way to put it. I see you also go into German, Italian, all kinds of other cuisines. And I say it it's becomes a whole cultural experience. Now, what also interested me is that one of the most traditional things is, in fact, vegetarian, which is a braai brookie. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people braai meat just as an excuse to be busy braaiing so that they can also do braai brookies. And I think when you do a braai brookie, even the traditional one, butter on the outside, if you're vegetarian or if you're vegan, olive oil on the outside. But the point is, with Cheese, onion, tomatoes, salt and pepper, chutney on the inside, buttered on the outside. This actually does not contain meat. It's a vegetarian meal, but almost wherever you go, when you're making braai brookies, the platter will always be empty. 
There might be some leftover steak or chops or chicken, but the bribery, there is no such thing as a leftover bribery. Well, I think if you follow any of your recipes, there certainly won't be any leftovers. So I must congratulate you on a beautifully produced book, wonderful photos, a marvellous array of recipes. We've been speaking to Jan Bry, The Vegetarian Option, and it's published by Bookstorm. was September in the Rain by James Melton on Fine Music Radio, where you're tuned into Book Choice, sponsored by our friends at Exclusive Books, and I'm your host, Paige Nick. After September in the Rain, our next review stays firmly rooted in nature, with a field guide to Gladioli of South Africa by Rod and Rachel Saunders and Fiona Ross. This review was written by Eugene Mole, and it's being read by John Hanks. 
Straight Nature has just published a field guide to the gladioli of South Africa by Rod and Rachel Saunders, with input from Fiona Ross. Now, most people will know these iconic irises from the horticultural trade, as historically they were taken to Europe, where they've been cultivated and hybridised to be excellent, long-lasting vase flowers available globally. Perhaps, though, what is not known is that South Africa is home to more than half the 270 global species, 166 of which are in this book, with some 1,300 photographs depicting habitats, growth form, flower structure, a stunning compendium of some of nature's most beautiful and intricate flowers. Each species entry is on a double-facing page, and the attention to detail is profound, with many innovative features that will assist with species identification, and with additional easy-to-read notes with a minimum of botanical jargon on topics such as ecology and pollination. Now, in order to take all these photographs and collect all the field data, Rod and Rachel's searches took them to archives. Herbaria books to experts, gardeners, mountain guides, and researchers, and to mountains and plains throughout the sub region. Sometimes the plants were easy to find, well known, prolific, and easy to identify. Other times they were more elusive. Occasionally they had to wait long periods until after a fire, perhaps, or until they happened to be in a place when conditions were just right. At times, plants were no longer to be found in locations in which they had previously been recorded, owing to human impact. Some locations have been changed beyond recognition. Recounting some of their field trips, Rod, who was a wonderful raconteur, would entertain his friends and colleagues with stories of the search. Rachel interjecting frequently, tales of vile weather. Lucky finds, unsuccessful trips, encounters with interesting people were all part and parcel of their sharing the story with others. However, the real story about this book is both sad and joyous, as the authors were murdered recently on a field trip in KwaZulu-Natal in February 2018, before they had completed their book. By then, they'd found and photographed all but one of the known gladiola species they sought. Namely, Gladiolus utenhagensis. Luckily, before the book was published, this species was located and photographed by Tony Dold at Rhodes University, so completing all the known species in the subregion. And this is where Fiona Ross came in, and with permission from the University of Cape Town, where she is a professor in anthropology, she spent her 2020 sabbatical year completing the book as a tribute and memorial to the Saunders. This really tested her ability as a non-botanist, but almost certainly making the book more accessible to the amateur. She must be congratulated for her outstanding level of dedication and commitment to complete the book. At four hundred and twenty rand, this is excellent value and a must-buy for all plant lovers. The title again: Saunders' Field Guide to the Gladioli of South Africa, and is published by Straight Nature. Wow! Talk about a plot twist. I did not see that coming. I'm so glad Fiona was able to complete this work. Right, Beverly Rosemiller, tell us what you've been reading. 
At a time when the women in Afghanistan face having to return to restrictions on their education, professional and private lives under the domination of men, it is sobering to recognise that things were not that different in the West within the recent past. My Irish mother was not allowed to take up a scholarship to the Slade School of Art because her father would not let her leave home for wicked London, let alone a naughty art school. The women-only Barbizon Hotel opened in 1928 in New York precisely to meet the demands of young women who longed, in an era of increasing emancipation, to get out from under their parents' supervision and forge their own way in the beckoning world. It was a huge, attractive hotel with well over 700 rooms, strict front-desk supervision, cooked meals so that the women would not have to worry about domestic chores, and a policy of no men ever in those tempting chambers. One of the women who would famously beat that rule was the beautiful Grace Kelly, whose shenanigans, including dancing topless, became part of its legendary stories. Historian Paulina Bren's book on the Barbizon is also a history of female emancipation, and how remarkable those women were who broke the mould. One of the first residents was the unsinkable Molly Brown, famous survivor of the Titanic. Over the years, there were a slew of movie stars besides Grace Kelly, Rita Hayworth, Candace Bergen, Ailey McGraw. There were also women who desired to be more than their looks, women who took on careers and started their own businesses, such as the Ford Modeling Agency. Sylvia Plath memorialised her stay in the hotel in The Bell Jar, as did Joan Didion in Goodbye to All That. It was, it must be said, a haven mainly for white, middle-class women. The number of black women and those from poor backgrounds was very small indeed. But for the many who lived there, it was a welcome smokescreen. For the debutante, who couldn't tell her parents that she really wanted to paint, for the shop girl who longed for a Broadway career, for the 18-year-old who told her fiancé that she would be right back, but first she needed to do a typing course, for those who wanted a taste of life before the confines of dutiful domestic life. And just when it looked as if they were winning, women in the Barbizon and elsewhere were forcibly reminded after World War II of who was really in charge. Men returning from the war expected to take up the available jobs, expected their women to be full-time wives and mothers, expected to be the heads of the family. After nearly three decades of opening up, clock turned back. Male dominance and female deference in the 1950s was entirely normalized. The forceful role models of Catherine Hepburn and Joan Crawford were replaced by the bubbling, seemingly compliant Doris Day and Debbie Reynolds. Higher education was the bastion of white men. Virtually every professor, administrator and admissions officer were men, as well as the bankers, judges, attorneys, doctors and bureaucrats. So much ground had been taken and then lost within a few short years and would take decades to reclaim. In 2007, the Barbizon was converted into condos for the well-heeled, such as comedian Ricky Gervais. But its history is fascinating and sobering and reminds us that nothing, especially when it comes to women's rights, should ever be taken for granted. The Barbizon by Paulina Bren. We welcome Bacha Bricker, General Manager of Exclusive Books, with some of their top picks. Publishers have dubbed this quartet of women domestic thriller writers the femme fatale of suspense fiction. 
These four ladies certainly can dish up the drama, and each has a new book on this month's Exclusive Books Recommends. These are sitting on the edge of your seat, nail-biting crime stories. Sinister undertones set in a seemingly idyllic suburban setting. Think picket white fences and cute doggies on leashes, with perhaps a psychopath or a murder or two. The genre was made popular with Netflix series like Big Little Lies and others. And you can almost hear the soundtrack in each of these books. In For Your Own Good, Samantha Downing, who is a best-selling author, the person who has the power to shape a student's future knows it. Teacher of the Year, Teddy Crutcher, doesn't just push his students to their full academic potential. He wants them to learn how to be good people much better than their privileged, meddlesome, entitled parents. After all, it's for their own good. In Lisa Jewell's book, The Night She Disappeared, it's 2017. 19-year-old Tallulah is going out on a date, leaving her baby with her mum, Kim. Kim watches her daughter leave and as late evening turns to night, which turns into early morning, she awaits her return and waits and waits. She never returns. Fast forward to 2019. Sophie is walking in the woods near the boarding school where her boyfriend has just started work as a head teacher and she notices a note fixed to a tree. Dig here. A cold case, an abandoned mansion, family trauma and dark secrets with a thread of malice that you can't quite put your finger on keeps the pages turning in this one. And then Megan Miranda's Such a Quiet Place. This is classic domestic noir. Welcome to Hollow's Edge, a picture-perfect neighborhood where everyone has each other's backs. At least, that's how it used to be. Until the night Brandon and Fiona Truett are found dead. Two years ago, branded a grifter, thief and sociopath by her friends and neighbors, Ruby Fletcher was convicted of murdering the Truetts. Now, freed by mistrial, Ruby has returned to Hollow Edge. But why would she come back? No one wants her there, least of all her old housemate, Harper Nash. And as her return sends shockwaves through the community, terrified residents turn on each other, and it soon becomes clear that not everyone was honest about the night the Truets died. And perhaps the best for last. This is Sherry Lapiner, who is another New York Times bestselling author, and her book is called Not a Happy Family. Even the title is gripping. In this family, everyone is keeping secrets, especially the dead. Brecken Hill is an upstate New York, expensive place to live. You have to be rich to live there. And they don't come much richer than Fred and Sheila Mercer. But even all their money cannot protect them from a murderer who comes to call. And the Mercer's are brutally murdered the night after an Easter dinner with their three grown-up kids, who are, of course, devastated. Or are they? Each stands to inherit millions. They were never a happy family. Did one of them snap after that dreadful evening? Or was it somebody else that night? It must have been. After all, if one of your siblings was a psychopath, surely you would know. I loved this thriller. It had the feel of an old-fashioned whodunit. Was it Colonel Mustard in the library with a candlestick? Well, was it one of the Mercer children in the living room and kitchen with a wire and knife? Whoever it was, they didn't like Fred and Sheila Mercer. So four books, four full dates. I read each of these books in one sitting, leaving my family to fend for themselves and the bath to run over.
book a date with any one of these femmes fatales and you will not regret it. When you meet with the young men early in spring They caught you in song and rhyme They woo you with words and a clover ring But if you examine the goods they bring They have a little to offer but the songs they sing In a plentiful waste of time of day A plentiful waste of time Oh, it's a long, long while From May to December But the days grow short When you reach September And the autumn weather Turns the leaves to flame One hasn't got For the waiting game Oh, the days dwindle down To a precious few September song by Sarah Vaughan. The music on Book Choice is selected by Rick Everett. Thank you for the great selection this month, Rick. Next up, the Booker Prize is recognized as one of the world's most prestigious literary awards. And this year, South Africa has two authors on the long list, Karen Jennings for a novel, An Island, and Damon Gulgut for his novel, The Promise. How cool is that? So we've invited both Booker-nominated authors to join us on the show this month to talk about their nominated books. So... First up, we're honoured to have Karen Shimka join us to interview Karen Jennings about her Booker Prize-nominated novel, An Island. These are two very esteemed Karens. Our interviewer, Karen Shimka, is an excellent writer of non-fiction, essays and poetry. She's also a wonderful human being who I'm lucky to call a friend. Karen Shimka's most recent book is called The Karen Book of Rules, which she wrote with another Karen, Karen Jennings. 
The Car and Book of Rules is an excellent read and it makes a brilliant gift too, I must tell you. In it, they respond to the Karen meme, which you may have seen taking over the internet. So in this book, two real-life Karens offer thoughts on how and when to be a Karen and how and when just to shut up. The Karen Book of Rules covers any sticky situation South Africans may find themselves in, and it's got lots of do's and don'ts for everything from bribes to WhatsApp groups and Zoom calls and even navigating the queued woolies. It's a very tongue-in-cheek etiquette guide, and it'll make you laugh out loud. I highly recommend it, and actually, I really learned a lot reading this book. So, we invited Karen Shimka, who wrote the book about the Karens, to join us to interview Karen Jennings, who's been nominated for the Booker Prize for her novel, An Island. So, it's really, it's a Karen and prize-winning book feast here on Book Choice this month. So, over to you, Karen and Karen. Karen Jennings is a South African writer of novels, short stories, and poetry. She's not only prolific, but has also always been generous, giving her time and expertise to projects that showcase Africa's rich literary talent. She has won prizes and scholarships in the past, but she is getting a lot of international attention since the announcement that her latest book, An Island, was chosen for the 2021 Man Booker Prize longlist. Congratulations, Karen. Thanks very much. Thank you. That's a lovely introduction. I'm blushing. <laughs> and welcome to Fine Music Radio's Book Choice. So you're not in South Africa right now. Tell us a little bit about where you are and why you're there and perhaps what your life is like. Right. So I've been in Brazil for about five years now. My husband is Brazilian and we met in Cape Town where he was working as a scientist. But unfortunately, there were a number of visa issues. And for his work and for visa related issues, we needed to move to Brazil. And it's been an incredibly quiet life for me here. I've been basically in isolation for five years. So everyone's complaining about the pandemic and going into lockdown and isolation. But I've been in, in that space for a very long time already. And what I do, I walk the dogs, I go for a run, and then I do some writing or research or freelance editing work. And, and that's it, really. It's a very unfancy life. And then you got this huge news about the Man Booker Prize longlisting. Tell us how you got the news and whether it's changed your life and in what way. I saw there was an email from my publisher and I thought, oh, well, I'll attend to that later. And then I went to take the dogs for a walk. And when I came back, I was sitting in the kitchen boiling some water and I looked at the email and there was the news. And I was home alone. My husband had already gone to work and I didn't really know what to think about it. I, I, and I'm not sure that I know what to think about it yet, even now a month later. I, it's quite difficult to fathom in some ways and in other ways. Well, actually, I don't know what to say about it, but the only real difference in my life that I can say is that I have hundreds of emails now that I need to reply to, whereas before I no one wrote to me. So now I'm just more popular in terms of email. <laughs> that doesn't really sound a great way to come out of isolation. <laughs> People often hear a writer's name for the first time when they are nominated for a prize, and then they assume that the writer's had this great stroke of luck. But this is, in fact, your sixth book. You've written three novels and a collection each of short stories and poetry. Had you always wanted to be a writer? I did, and it's very hard to know exactly when, but I know probably 
very much from when I was about six years old. That was certainly when I did know. And I remember writing poems in in our front garden. And my mom recently reminded me that about, I'm not sure exactly when, I had said to her that I will try to make a go of being a writer until I'm 40. And if I don't feel that I've achieved anything by the time I'm 40, then I will, you know, get a proper job and become a serious adult. And so I'm 38 now, soon to be 39. So I still have a year to go to prove myself. (laughs) And in the meantime, you've um, embarked on a PhD in history, which doesn't really have direct links to literature. But I was wondering whether there are any sort of specific historical lines that have piqued your interest and how, if they do, relates to how your literary mind is occupied. Yes. One of the things that I dislike about the way that we in what I suppose you can call the the former colonies, the way that we look to the Western world for guidance and support, telling us what we need to be thinking and what is good and worthy of attention And so one of the things I am interested in is looking at how knowledge was shared and production of knowledge was done going back to colonial times, pre-colonial times, really. But, you know, the start of the the age of discovery and seeing how within what's called the periphery that knowledge was being produced, things were being done without the influence or reliance on the center, on the nodes of Europe and what we now look also at America. Mm, It sounds absolutely fascinating. Does that mean, though, that we won't be getting another novel from you anytime soon? Um, (laughs) I have a a complete manuscript that is with my agent, but I'm not in any sort of rush with that. I think we have enough on our plates right now with all these emails and queries about film rights and all sorts of things. So I'm not sure when that will be coming your way (laughs) at some point. At some point in the next year or two, there will be another novel. That's wonderful news. And it sounds like your life went kind of from very, very quiet to very, very busy with things like film rights. So Karen Jennings from Fine Music Radio's Book Choice, congratulations on your longlist nomination for the 2021 Man Booker Award. I think the shortlist is going to be announced around the middle of September and we will be rooting for you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Thanks very much. And our own Vanessa Levenstein spoke to Damon Galgut about his nominated novel, The Promise. Interestingly, this isn't the first time Galgut has been nominated for the Booker Prize, and we're hoping third time is a charm. South African author Damon Galgut has been shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize twice, in 2003, The Good Doctor, and the 2010 novel, In a Strange Room. His latest novel, The Promise, has been long-listed for the Booker Prize. As South Africans, we're eagerly watching that space. Welcome, Damon, to Fine Music Radio's Book Choice. Hi, I'm glad to be here. And congratulations, of course. Thank you. Now, the world of high-profile prize ceremonies, interviews, media hype, it's far removed from the solitary, cocooned world of a writer. How do you emerge from that cellular space to navigate the world stage, albeit now through Zoom and telephone interviews? Not easily, is the truth. I've never, by temperament, been inclined to public life. So I find that aspect of 
you know, literary existence kind of challenging. And in certain ways, I'll confess that, you know, lockdown and doing everything remotely on Zoom kind of suits me. So, you know, most writers are solitary people and spend their time indoors and isolated. So, you know, I'm far from alone in struggling to make that transition. I was telling my daughter about the interview today and was going through the question. She says, does he live in a forest? I said, no. I would love to live in a forest, but in fact, I live in Greenpoint. <laughs> That's what I thought. Now, again, just to follow from that question, you write in silence, not in the forest, but Greenpoint. And it's been thought you don't have a cell phone, that you have cut off as much as you can from the outside world, so that you can have that sort of quiet space to create. No, it's true I don't have a cell phone, and that I very often don't answer my landline when it rings. But that's not really a deliberate attempt to cut off from the world so much as reflection of my phobia about telephones. I'm uh, not only about telephones, I may add, I am sort of technologically challenged in lots of ways. But on the other hand, I have lots of friends. I do have a social life. It's just perhaps not as exuberant as everyone else's. Of course. And just because one's not on social media doesn't mean one's not social. Well, indeed, and I think a lot of the socialising done on social media seems a little desperate, perhaps a little forced, and those are not the right words. Artificial might be, might be the, the real one. Nobody's portraying themselves on social media as unhappy or depressed, even though, in fact, they might be. So there's very often a disconnect between the real person and the life they're living. And, of course, your book just portrays people so, so how they are. It really gets to the nitty-gritty, which is so refreshing. Amor, like you, she had a close brush with death. She's not a writer, but she's also an observer. And reading it, I kept feeling, is she similar to Damon Galgut? I didn't think about Anton being similar to you, even though, of course, he's trying to write, but I didn't see that similarity. I thought of her. Do you feel the connection between her and you? Yes, but the, the truth is that you can't really write a character without drawing on some aspect of yourself. So... Although, you know, it may not be the part of myself I'm proudest of, Anton derives from part of me just as much as Amor does. I mean, I think there's a certain trick with writing, which is that you have to get a feel for the character that you're describing, a feel being a sense of how they might operate based on your own emotions, your own feelings, and then you can sort of stretch it, if you like, into forms of character that you yourself don't live out. But the root of the character has to be somewhere in your own personality or it won't, you know, that character won't live and breathe. And they do breathe. They breathe. I hope so. Sure. The Swart family's history also reflects our country's history. Now, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. We've all experienced the recent national unrest. Is there hope? Can we find redemption through our more, the name, of course, through love, meaning love. I've been asked variations on that question a few times recently, and I'm wary of setting Amor up as some kind of moral pointer about how to live. I know that writers are very often turned to as, you know, prophetic figures who can tell you about the future and how we should be doing things. I'm very uncomfortable in that role. I barely know how to live my own life, let alone, you know, advise others on how to live theirs. I think Amor is more a reflection of that part of my nature that feels intensely guilty about being a white South African and the unfair advantages and privileges that come with that. 
All I can tell you is that in terms of the universe of my own book, Amor is the person who feels she should she should renounce her inheritance and give up what she has. Mm. Whether that is a viable way for the our country to move forward is another question altogether and probably best answered by politicians or philosophers, but I'm merely a novelist and uh, writing about the people that I create and what they do, I don't see very much beyond that. Towards the end of the book, there's this line, but in the end, you arrive at the same place, which isn't the same anymore. And you go on to talk about God, and it reminded me of the T.S. Eliot line, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Both speak about faith, and I want to know how faith or spirituality guides your creative process. I'm not sure that it does, although somebody pointed out to me recently, and I can't deny that it's true, that I've written uh, quite a few religious characters over the years. You know, I grew up in Pretoria with a mother who has been something of a spiritual seeker in her time, and she has quite strong religious views, so I think I've absorbed some of those laterally. But I myself quite skeptical of you know, the afterlife and uh, the code of living that we're supposed to follow to achieve it. I did have quite a lot of fun in this book through the device of the four funerals that take place, exploring or playing with the religious approach to death and the rituals that accompany it. But I wasn't trying to make any, you know, grand statement about what religion can do for us as individuals. It was more having fun, serious fun, but fun about the very, very different and sometimes contradictory things that people believe. So I guess, you know, human belief takes various fantastical forms, and it's endlessly fascinating to me what people are prepared to believe is actually true. It would come as a surprise if they turn out to be right, of course, and uh, we um, I, may, I may find that out. Yes, it will be too late to write a book about it when you do. So, Damon, I want to end with something, and I want to say that people around the world are reading this book, deconstructing it, asking you questions about it, and heaping praise which it deserves. But I bet you that no one's going to resonate with one of the lines the way I have. Now, the line's at the bottom of page 87. Anton can see a black man in the bed, bandaged up like a mummy, for Witt must be spinning in his grave. Can't believe they haven't changed the name of the hospital yet. And I was reading this, and can I tell you my story? Sure. I was born in Pretoria in 1969 at the HF of Witt Hospital. Oh. And my parents put a birth notice in the Cape Times, and they were so embarrassed by the name, they changed the name to Pretoria General. Well, it was changed uh, in a newspaper article for your birth, but I think it still carried the name H of Wood completely well dead. past 94. In fact, it was something I discovered in the writing of the book. You were completely right. They lied. They it lied. was a good lie. Um, it was a good and lie. eventually came true. So there you are. There you are. Okay, just back to Amor. And I have to say this. I mean, there's that whole thing. Is she a saint? Is she a bit different? She's a mensch and so are you. Thank you. And just wishing you all the best. And... We'll be celebrating. Thank you. That's, it's been very nice to chat. The Booker Shortlist is being announced any day now, and we're holding thumbs for both of these incredible authors. Thank you for making South Africa so proud with your beautiful writing. And that good news wraps up our show. Huge thanks, as always, first of all, to all the Karens and Karens, and also to Mwandi for pulling the show together, to Exclusive Books for sponsoring us, and to our wonderful reviewers who bring these books to life for us every month. We'll be back with Book Choice on the first Monday in October. And we're playing out with It Might As Well Be Spring by Danny Williams. 
I'm as restless as a willow in a windstorm. I'm as jumpy as a puppet on a string. I'd say that I had spring fever, but I know it isn't spring. I am starry-eyed and vaguely discontented, like a nightingale without a song to sing. Oh, why should I have spring fever when it isn't even spring? I keep wishing I were somewhere else. Walking down a strange new street, hearing words that I have never heard from a girl I've yet to meet. I'm as busy as a spider spinning daydreams. I'm as giddy as a baby on a swing. I haven't seen a crocus or a rosebud or a robin on a wing, but I feel so gay in a melancholy way that it might as well be spring. It might as well be. But I feel so gay in a melancholy way that it might as well be spring. It might as well be spring. Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. FM.